Part 2, Section 16 of The Dark Flower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arturo J.R. 17. The Dark Flower by John Galsworthy. Section 33. At her cottage, Olive stood often by the river. What lay beneath all that bright water? What strange, deep, swaying, life so far below the ruffling of wind and the shadows of the willow trees? Was love down there too? Love between sentient things, where it was almost dark? Or had all passion climbed up to rustle with the reeds and float with the waterflowers in the sunlight? Was there color? Or had color been drowned? No scent and no music, but movement there would be, for all the dim groping things bending one way to the current. Movement, no less than in the aspen leaves, never quite still, and the winged droves of the clouds. And if it were dark down there, it was dark too above the water and hearts ached, and eyes just as much searched for that which did not come. To watch it always flowing by to the sea, never looking back, never swaying this way or that, drifting along quiet as fate, dark or glamorous with the gold and moonlight of these beautiful days and nights, when every flower in her garden in the fields and along the river banks, was full of sweet life when dog roses starred the lanes, and in the wood the bracken was nearly a foot high. She was not alone there, though she would much rather have been. Two days after she left London, her uncle and aunt had joined her. It was from Cramier that they had received their invitation. He himself had not yet been down. Every night, having parted from Mrs. Ercott and gone up the wide shallow stairs to her room, she would sit down at the window to write to Lennon, one candle beside her. One pale flame for comrade, as it might be his spirit. Every evening she poured out to him her thoughts, and ended always, Have patience! She was still waiting for courage to pass that dark hedge of impalpable doubts and fears and scruples, of a dread that she could not make articulate even to herself. Having finished, she would lean out into the night. The colonel, his black figure cloaked against the dew, would be pacing up and down the lawn with his good-night cigar, whose fiery spark she could just discern. And beyond? her ghostly dove-house, and beyond, the river, flowing. Then she would clasp herself close, afraid to stretch out her arms, lest she should be seen. Each morning she rose early, dressed, and slipped away to the village to post her letter. From the woods across the river, wild pigeons would be calling, as though love itself pleaded with her afresh each day. 
She was back well before breakfast, to go up to her room and come down again as if for the first time. The colonel, meeting her on the stairs or in the hall, would say, Ah, my dear, just beaten you. Slept well? And while her lips touched his cheek, slanted at the proper angle for uncles, he never dreamed that she had been three miles already through the dew. Now that she was in the throes of an indecision, whose ending, one way or the other, must be so tremendous, now that she was in the very swirl, she let no sign at all escape her. The colonel and even his wife were deceived into thinking that, after all, no great harm had been done. It was grateful to them to think so, because of that stewardship at Monte Carlo, of which they could not render to good account. The warm, sleepy days, with a little croquet and a little paddling on the river, and much sitting out of doors, when the colonel would read aloud from Tennyson, were very pleasant. To him, if not to Mrs. Ercott, it was especially jolly to be out of town this confounded, crowded time of year. And so the days of early June went by, each finer than the last. And then Cramier came down, without warning, on a Friday evening. It was hot in London. The session dull. The Jubilee turning everything upside down. They were lucky to be out of town. A silent dinner. That. Mrs. Ercott noticed that he drank wine like water, and for minutes at a time fixed his eyes, that looked heavy, as if he had not been sleeping, not on his wife's face, but on her neck. If Olive really disliked and feared him, as John would have it, she disguised her feelings very well. For so pale a woman, she was looking brilliant that night. The sun had caught her cheeks, perhaps. That black, low-cut frock suited her, with old Milanese point lace matching her skin so well, and one carnation of darkest red at her breast. Her eyes were really sometimes like black velvet. It suited pale women to have those eyes that looked so black at night. She was talking, too, and laughing more than usual. One would have said, a wife delighted to welcome her husband. And yet there was something, something in the air, in the feel of things, the lowering fixity of that man's eyes, or thunder coming, after all, this heat. Surely the night was unnaturally still and dark, hardly a breath of air, and so many moths out there, passing the beam of light like little pale spirits crossing a river. Mrs. Ercott smiled, pleased at that image. Moths. Men were like moths. There were women from whom they could not keep away. Yes, there was something about Olive that drew men to her. Not meretricious, to do her justice, not that at all, but something soft and fatal like one of these candle flames to the poor moths. John's eyes were never quite as she knew them when he was looking at Olive. And Robert Cramier's. What a queer, drugged look they had. As for that other poor young fellow, she had never forgotten his face when they came on him in the park. 
and when after dinner they sat on the veranda, they were all more silent still, just watching, it seemed, the smoke of their cigarettes, rising quite straight, as though wind had been withdrawn from the world. The colonel twice endeavored to speak about the moon. It ought to be up by now. It was going to be full. And then Cramier said, Put on that scarf thing, Olive, and come round the garden with me. Mrs. Ercott admitted to herself now that what John said was true. Just one gleam of eyes turned quickly this way and that as a bird looks for escape, and then Olive had got up and quietly gone with him down the path till their silent figures were lost to sight. Disturbed to the heart, Mrs. Ercott rose and went over to her husband's chair. He was frowning and staring at his evening shoe, balanced on a single toe. He looked up at her and put out his hand. Mrs. Ercott gave it a squeeze. She wanted comfort. The colonel spoke. It's heavy tonight, Dolly. I don't like the feel of it. End of section 33